talking about confrontation tonight, so hopefully that hits home for a few of you, and hopefully y'all get a little unstuck tonight. And so I want to pray for our time, and then just go ahead and get right into it. Father, uh, thank you for bringing us all the way almost to April. Uh, thank you uh, for Easter Sunday coming up this weekend. Uh, thank you for rest that you bring us. Thank you for the flowers that are blooming, uh, and thank you for your presence uh, here tonight. Thank you for bringing us together again. And I pray that you be here during this time. I pray that the words come out of mouth are wise and reflect your heart to these people uh, and how you care for them. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, between 1970 and 1999, the uh, Korean Air, which is South Korea's largest airline, had a big problem. And I mean like a big problem. During these 30 years, they crashed 16 airplanes. That's a rate that's higher than anyone else in the world. That was like nearly a plane every two years. And we hear about like numbers of crashes this high, and we like can instinctively think, you know, maybe they just had really bad airplanes back then. And well, no, uh, all those crashes happened to be top of the line modern airplanes. All of them were properly maintained. Uh, there was no broken or malfunctioning parts. Uh, so, okay, well, maybe they just had poorly trained pilots back in those days. Uh, well, no. Uh, see, the pilots were all as well-trained as any other airline in the world. They would have been hired in world, and they were. Uh, okay, so what was it? Was it just a bad streak of weather? You know, just a freak chance, and they just got, got some bad luck? Um, no. <laughs> and so, perplexed, Korean Air did a deep investigation in order to find the common denominator, if there was any, between all of these crashes. And so as they modeled the crashes and they studied the cockpit recordings of each flight, they discovered that the biggest factor in each of these crashes was actually the culture of the pilots. You see, Korean culture is hierarchical. And for all the benefits um, that come with that loyalty and that respect that's baked into the culture, it created a perfect storm in the cockpit. The, the problem uh, was that modern complex airlines are designed to be flown by two equal co-pilots. But in Korean culture, you're obliged to be extremely differential to your elders and your superiors. And so in each of these crashes, they found that while both pilots were well-trained in how to fly these planes, the captain was much older and experienced than his co-pilot. And at critical moments in the flight, the younger co-pilot would either express their concern about the captain's decisions, but only through vague comments, or there would just be dead silence in the cockpit. At moments that, where there needed to be like, clear communication, uh, the problem wasn't that <laughs> tensions were high and they made a mess of conflict, but they were avoiding it with every fiber of their being. And there's a good end to this story. In the early 2000s, right after this, this study came out, Korean Air started a massive overhaul process that included a cultural reorientation in the cockpit, where they trained uh, their staff to do necessary conflict in a respectful, respectful and healthy way that fit their culture. And uh, actually, for the last two decades, Korean Air has consistently performed as one of the safest airlines in the world. A complete turnaround. And I know absolutely no one in this room is a co-pilot, 
uh, having to make like life or death decisions on the regular. But I'm sure just about everyone in this room can relate to these younger co-pilots. Let, let's be a little honest. The vast majority of us in this room aren't South Korean, but we're a bunch of people-pleasing Southerners. <laughs> and seriously, when it comes to avoiding conflict, we can compete with the best of them. Forget getting a degree in communication studies. We have PhDs from birth at avoiding interpersonal conflict, right? And how many, okay, here, here's some hypotheticals. How many of y'all at some point this semester, you know, hypothetical, of course, walked into this room and you saw that person over here in this corner and so you made a beeline over here just so you didn't have to talk to them? Uh, or maybe uh, for a while now, you've needed to have a hard conversation with your roommate. But every time they pull into the driveway, you get so filled with anxiety, you just make a beeline to your room and you stay there the rest of the night. And I know conflict avoidance might be too broad of a brush uh, to paint over everyone in this room. And so to stick with our uh, uh, illustration at the start, a few of you keep finding yourself in plane crashes because you never stop arguing with your co-pilot. Uh, but the odds are that in this community, your co-pilot's still a good old southerner and you're not seeing much of them right now. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to be lighthearted because confrontation's tough enough. But can we agree that we have a real problem? Why is it that no matter how diligently we try to avoid conflict, it always finds us. The longer we try to avoid doing needed relational maintenance, we'll call it, the more complicated of a mess we find ourselves in. Talking with a lot of you, I know that there are very real situations that you're clueless about how to move forward in. I know that we all feel this groaning that's associated with conflict, right? Our incompetence in conflict has caused friendships that we really do value to become distant over the course of this year. And our communities have started to break apart a little bit. And hopefully you, you find this assuring, because it, it was to me. I'm no expert on what culture was like in the Middle East in 1500 BC. But I do know one thing, they really sucked at conflict too. It, it was such a problem that there's proverbs on conflict on just about every page. It was hard to work through when making this. And we need to break our foolish habits of avoiding conflict, and thankfully, we've been given a lot of help. So where does Proverbs start to teach us about wise confrontation? If you've been coming around the last few weeks, you've hopefully noticed a trend with how all these talks start. It doesn't matter the topic we dig into, Proverbs has been clear that wisdom starts with taking a look at who God reveals himself to be. And so, what is God like in conflict? For starters, God is confrontational. And I know that's a loaded statement because after a lifetime of poor conflict, we have a ton of built-in assumptions about what this means he's like. To you, does God's confrontation resemble uh, instinctively your father's? It, it's hot-headed, unchecked, unpredictable. 
he's radically different than that. Is God some sort of uh, arrogant Christian <laughs> that seems to just want to die on every little hill? Is he just super opinionated? Um, is he uh, cold and impersonal? No, he's not. How, how about social media warriors? Is God passive in the face of injustice? Do, is he just super opinionated about the world and how it's supposed to be, but he doesn't actually have any desire to do anything about it? No, he is not like that either. And so when we try to grasp the nature of God's confrontation through our default categories, it doesn't work out. We can't project our broken experience on con of conflict on how God does conflict. And, it, and we can't do that and expect to know him well at all. When we come to God, we have this bad habit of dictating to him who he is rather than just letting him do the introducing. And so, how about we let God introduce to us what his confrontation is like? Take a look with me at Exodus uh, 34. And this, this is the most intimate... Um, introduction God has ever given his people to understand who he is. It reads, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This was the life mantra of Old Testament Jews. They lived in this same broken world that we did, and they depended on who God said he was here. We get a custom filter in order to rightly perceive him in all the different areas of our life, right here. He's, he said, I'll just read it again. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. At the core of who God is, there's this, a compassionate desire to deeply be invested in our lives. He has this disposition to care about our, our lives in a way that doesn't waver in the face of our shortcomings. It's just simply a part of who he is, God says. And he freely cares for us as a righteous father. But it's this peculiar phrase right in the middle that's gonna be key for us to understand the aim of God's confrontation. For starters, it means that the things in this world that anger you and oppress you do have an impact on him. It shows that he does uh, get angry. Um, ooh, where did I go? Hold on a minute. Um, I, <laughs> uh, it might seem strange, but, who, but a God who gets angry is an essential part of the picture. But it's a little bit more complicated than just that. This sentence, remember, is supposed to be a filter for us to understand how God relates to his people. So this part, where he leaves the door open for his anger, is probably making this room of Southerners feel a little uncomfortable, right? And, and I, I know it can be for me. It, but it's not simply that he just becomes angry with us like he could change his mind any second. 
It, it says that he is slow to anger, and this is sandwiched between all of his other characteristics. God says his heart for us places his compassion, graciousness, steadfast love, and faithfulness in an inseparable dance with his hatred of sin and injustice. And here in this tension, uh, we introduce into the equation this. A hard truth that our hearts don't desire God the way that he desires us. We actually end up chasing after things that are deadly to us. We run after idols that damage the world all around us instead of bringing life to it. We often end up being the very people that do the things that God hates. And so what is a God described like this to do with a people like us? He rolls up his sleeves and he confronts what's creating a separation between us. Without anger, there is no gospel because there is no cross. Without God's compassion, his grace, his love, and his faithfulness, there is no gospel because we're left to pay the punishment for being a curse in this world. But when you put all these pieces together, you get the God who's on a rescue mission. And he's coming for you because he wants you back. The God of the gospel came down to deal with sin himself. Because, yeah, he's pretty confrontational. He came down in the form of his son, Jesus, and lived the perfect life going toe-to-toe with sin, death, and the devil. And he sacrificed himself on the cross to die our death and was resurrected, defeating death. And the outcome of this conflict has a radical effect on our relationship to this God who is slow to anger. When we place our faith in Christ, yes, we're saved from our sins. But if that's all, slow to anger could accidentally just mean that we get a lot of of get-out-of-jail-free cards, right? But God is way too persistent in his conflict to just stop there. Through Christ's resurrection, what we're celebrating this Sunday, we aren't just saved. We're adopted. Christians aren't just the people of God. We are the children of God. Sons and daughters. And so our start point is never his anger. Christ took that. Our start point is now forever as his beloved children. And here we see the sweetness of our Father who is slow to anger. Take a look at Proverbs 19 and 18 with me. It writes, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Don't be a willing party to their death. Sin's still enticing, y'all, and we stumble into it daily. But thankfully, Christ has taken the punishment away, but not the confrontation. Because we need this confrontation. Otherwise, we would keep choosing the stuff that destroys us. We don't know any better. We don't know anything different until we get God's confrontation. Our father being slow to anger means that he's both patient and insistent with us. His confrontation is a refusal to be a willing party in our chase after death. And God is faithfully and actively restoring us into people who were designed, into the people we were designed to be in this world. And sometimes we're so stubborn that, yeah, he needs to get into our faces a little bit. He needs to ruffle our feathers some. 
God definitely gets angry with his people. There are countless passages where God is angry, and he does confront his people. And I'll, I'll read some of these to you real quick. And the prophet Hosea, uh, he writes, I know what you're like, Israel. You can't hide yourself from me. You have left me as a prostitute leaves her husband, and you're utterly defiled. <laughs> That's a little blunt. How about um, from Jesus himself while he was here on the earth? This is him confronting uh, some of the uh, uh, Jewish Pharisees in, the t in a town square. He, and he says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love this best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And this, this part kills me. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, Woe to you too, lawyers, <laughs> uh, for you load people with burdens that are hard to bear. You, and you yourselves don't touch the burdens with a single one of your fingers. How about what he said to Peter, his disciple, the dude that ended up being the cornerstone of the early church? He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. God's tone isn't always this way with us. In fact, looking at the combination of his core characteristics, I would say that most of the time his tone isn't this way with his children. But God wisely knows exactly when to be confrontational. He calls a spade a spade, and when he does aim his arrows, he doesn't miss. God's confrontation to us isn't always polite, and it's shocking, and it can be jarring, and it can often actually be deeply exposing. Yet God displays time and time again throughout Scripture that wise confrontation is designed to protect life. It's designed to care for you. And so after hearing about this God, this God who's a wise and resilient fighter, are, are you ready to learn from him? Is his tender heart to the lowly appealing to you? And do you want to learn to be a force in your communities that's going to restore life? If your answer is yes, then my question back to you is, are you ready to get forced out of your conflict comfort zone and have your patience extremely tested as well? Because as we start to get practical here in a second, it means a bunch of Southerners are about to get their confrontational training wheels put on. The thing about conflict is that it's hardly ever easy, right? Since we're not God, there's a large reason behind this. There aren't many variables that you can control in conflict. Namely, you're incapable of controlling what the other person does in the situation. You're out of control of their temper. You have no say over their receptiveness um, to your confrontation. And that makes all of this challenging because we have to make sure that we control the variables that we can. So before you initiate a confrontation, there needs to be serious self-reflection that happens every single time you step into the ring. Because the goal of wise confrontation 
for us is to reflect the heart of God to the party you're confronting. And that's a challenge, right? Because we're not talking about your personal agendas. We're not talking about your pride or your wrath or your vengeance. The hope of wise confrontation is to restore life and to nourish our communities. And so I want to run through a few helpful frameworks uh, from the Proverbs just to help you know if you're attempting wise conflict. This isn't comprehensive. Like I said, the Proverbs is littered. I just found that these were helpful. Uh, the first one, uh, Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Wise people use confrontation to heal relationships, not destroy them. That's not on the table. Here's a funny thing about a lot of us. We're actually uber-confrontational people, right? The problem is that we're just cowards, and we talk about the issue to everyone except the one person that actually needs to be confronted. <laughs> Wise confrontation prioritizes fostering love within the community, and it prioritizes remaining friends on the other side of conflict. It prioritizes that on the front side. As Christians, we always need to be seeking to turn enemies into family. And when you, fe when you feel like you've been wrong, you should absolutely seek to address the matter. Uh, but if you haven't even yet been yet to address the person that you need to confront, why do you need to form a 20-person army before you go talk to them? <laughs> Why do you even intend on reserving, resolving the issue um, with the other person, or are you just pridefully seeking validation that you're right in this situation? If that person actually ends up repenting to you, are you ready to do the work to restore the damaged view of your brother or sister that you planted into their community with your gossip? And, and yeah, well, that's just that. Okay, so the second, the second one. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 18.2. Fools find no pressure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. And also uh, 16.24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Wise confrontation is well-aimed, because it has listened, it has checked itself, and it's obtained a clear understanding of the issue. It has attempted to see the issue as God sees the issue. So perhaps you're enraged by a decision made by people in positions of leadership over you, which means wise people uh, don't blindly accept these decisions if we look at these Proverbs, but still go out of their way to honor their leaders. So, if you find yourself in this situation, recognize that you have a limited perspective on, on what's happening, why decisions were made. Seek understanding, and also make sure any feedback you give is constructive and not corrosive. Be a part of the solution. Remember, our goal in conflict is to foster loving community, right? If you have sincere intentions of resolving a complicated issue, though, it, it, it can be wise to obtain the perspective of others from outside the situation. 
we, we can seldom trust our own perception, and it's a good practice to assume that you don't see it perfectly. Um, but remember, again, to go back to the first one, there's a difference between gossip and seeking counsel. Remember to keep your number of advisors small and show honor to the people that you speak about. Before approaching this conversation as well, once you've got collected all the data, make sure that your pride doesn't have a hand on the steering wheel. There's nothing that can corrupt conflict quicker than our pride. If you're actually found to be in the wrong, do you think that you would be humble enough to repent in the moment for any wrongs you weren't aware that you did? Ask yourself that question before you step into the ring. Third helpful thing, Proverbs 29:11, a fool gives vent, full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Wise confrontation is well-framed. So are you certain that you actually know what you're confronting? Confrontation is difficult enough to receive. It's even more difficult when it's presented scattershot and difficult to map out. And so Jesus shot bullseyes when he needed to address an issue. Spend some time reflecting on what you want to say, especially if you've made the mistake of harboring a number of grievances against somebody. A well-framed correction has a much higher likelihood of being understood and received humbly. Uh, but also, maybe don't barge them with 10 things you probably should have brought up months ago. Take your time mending the relationship because you weren't in a rush then and you don't need to be in a rush now, okay? Fourth thing, uh, we'll look at actually 1 Thessalonians uh, 5.14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. The last thing I want to say about doing confrontation wisely is that wise people only use confrontation when necessary. Now, this is probably going to be the hardest one for a lot of us. I know that it's for, it is for me. Confrontation is just one of the tools in our relationship maintenance toolbox. You need to know when it's time in your relationship with somebody to use it, and when you actually should be looking for one of the other tools instead. Being able to identify the posture we uh, one another carries ourselves with is a skill that it's hard to develop, and there's grace for that. The differences between dealing with a hard-hearted person and a faint-hearted person are difficult to discern and they require wisdom. Because one of them may desperately need encouragement and support while the other one needs correction. And this is particularly hard in cases of uh, mental health issues. In the instance of depression, if the individual is taking steps through their depression, um, they need encouragement. Confrontation in this situation could unwisely uh, take out what little courage is left in that weary soul. And they need support. Support your friend and just take time to hear their story. Don't rush in with 12 ways to fix it. They don't need that. They just need you. 
also, um, as they are learning to manage their responsibilities in the midst of this, encourage them about what they're doing. And if they haven't taken steps to see professional help, ask like, if you could help with that. Uh, walk a long road with them. But perhaps you're at a place with a friend where you've walked a very long road with them and not much has changed yet. They aren't attempting to follow through with their responsibilities anymore. Um, they consistently are turning their depression into an excuse for everything that's going on. This has been happening for a while and a while and a while. And they also haven't taken steps to see professional help either. Consider confronting this person, but still do it gently because their soul is still weary and their spirit might be rejuvenated by how you support him through, them through your comfort. I mean, through your confrontation. <laughs> so that's all for how to do wise con confrontation. But here's the kicker. I just spent the last 30 minutes or so talking to a room of, let's see, 186, Casey? Um, about confrontation. We've all heard about how we need to do it more often. Uh, we've taken a look at how God models it for us. And I've spent the last 10 minutes or so giving tips on just how to do it. And so it would probably be wise to entertain the thought that I just gave a whole bunch of people a map of how to finally confront you. <laughs> Maybe you're the hard-hearted person, or the arrogant person, the disruptive person, the proud person that I was talking about. And so here's a piece of wisdom from Proverbs for you. And honestly, there are a lot of verses that say similar stuff like this. They say it's softer. Um, but I just love how blunt God is sometimes. <laughs> whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. So there's that. <laughs> Wise people seek out correction. You want to know why? Because they know that they need to grow. They cherish to be more like Christ, and they know that there's no way they're going to be able to do that without their brothers and sisters pointing out their blind spots. Further, they value the unity of the body of Christ and want to contribute to that especially when it comes to their own repentance. And so I want to tell you a story about one of the wisest discussions I have ever had with someone. If you don't know um, my man Harrison Vital, he's the dude that was playing the keys up here. You need to get to know him right here, my man. Um, at this point in my internship, this part of my life's no secret. Racial justice and cross-cultural ministry is something that is near and dear to my heart. It's actually been perhaps the most potent area in cor of correction in my own life. Um, and I'm thankful for over these last five years how far Christ has brought me. And I've got a long way to go. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I gave a talk at Freshman Fellowship where the passage on the topic presented the opportunity to address racial justice. And so I, I took a shot at it. And the next day, I grabbed coffee with Harrison, and that was hands down one of the most healing conversations that I have ever had. 
Because in, in that moment, uh, he was convicted by the passage the prior night, and he went out of his way to seek understanding. When, he, when we sat down, he started off by just confessing that the, type, the, uh, the talk the night before stirred up a lot of stuff in him. And re- really, it was the posture of his question that came next, um, where, he, where to echo the proverb, uh, it was sweet to my soul, and it was healing to my bones. He said, when REF talks about racial justice and cultural events, I don't necessarily disagree. That I just mainly don't know what to do with it. I'm uncertain about how to engage with it. But I know the staff, and I know the students putting it on. And I trust that y'all love the Lord, and you want to love UGA well, just as I do. So I just wanted to ask if you could help me understand why we're talking about this and why we're doing ministry this way. Man, we could have talked all day long. That was a good, good conversation. It was joyous, the back and forth dialogue. I really appreciated even what you brought to the table uh, with it. And Harrison had two priorities that day. He wasn't wise because he was coming and talking to me about racial justice. That has nothing to do with it. Harrison wanted to gain understanding about what REF was seeking to do to be on mission with God. And he wanted to contribute to the unity of this community. And everyone in this room would do well to start moving towards one another with that posture. Harrison, this last one's a shout out specifically to you. The one who gets wisdom loves life, and the one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. So to wrap up, I did want to finish with one final word. In a conversation about wise conflict, uh, there's a natural implication that there's foolish conflict. I touched on some of this, but I specifically wanted to give a word about what uh, you do when you find yourself in a position where you're the recipient of foolish conflict. Definitely taking a pivot from what Harrison did. First, uh, let's say someone comes at you hot and fast with 10 charges against you and like one and a half, if you're being considerate, uh, have some truth to them, but the rest, they're just downright outlandish. Remain humble, remain calm, and acknowledge that you'll consider the bit that seemed truthful. There's probably a kernel of truth here or there. Second, Being humble doesn't mean that you have to accept things that aren't true. You should be wise in this moment to confront what lies were told and let truth hit the fool's ears. Third, sometimes it's going to be wiser for you um, to do what the fool should have done. If someone with a track record of foolish conflict in your life utters words that just should never have left your mouth, don't let them land on your ears. Before they can take root, if you can, go to a more trustworthy source in your life and ask them if uh, they see any of that in you so that they can help you discern what's true and rebuke what isn't. And and last, uh, before I close here in a second, you're never asked to remain in a situation where you're being demeaned, 
degraded or abused. Each and every one of you in this room is made in the image of God. And you aren't asked to confront someone who would put you at risk or doesn't respect that dignity that you bear. And I know that was quick. I know that's probably the most loaded part of it, the part that stings. And so if you want to talk about that and some of the nuances here, uh, anyone on staff would love to talk with you. There's a lot of wise people in this room that you can get to know. A lot of even this talk uh, came from just getting to know y'all over these last few years. Uh, and so you have a home here. Uh, we're thankful for you. We're grateful that you came tonight. And I want to pray. And worship team's going to come back up. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for how compassionate you are, how gracious you are, how you're slow to anger, and you're persistent in your pursuit of us. You're persistent in your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us. Thank you for not leaving us stuck. Thank you for not uh, leaving us in sin. Thank you for your son. Thank you for what he did on the cross, and thank you that he was resurrected and us along with him. And I pray uh, that as we sing ourselves out of here, that you be over everyone. Um, let anything I said that was unwise uh, leave their ears. Lord, I pray that uh, this room, this community uh, starts uh, to navigate relationships better. And I pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.